Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You say to man, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and then the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This being the word of the Lord that does not change is for the saints today, and we are they. So this is an old-fashioned Bible study. So we're going to study this together, and I'll ask you questions and you'll teach me, please. (laughs) So let's begin by making some observations. Um, Who wrote this? Moses. Moses wrote it. What do we know about Moses? Tell me about his birth. Basket. He was born uh, during a time of severe oppression when the edict had gone out from Pharaoh that all the Hebrew boys should be killed. And he told the Hebrew midwives to do it. They didn't do it out of faith. And his own mother had him, saw he was a beautiful child. All children are beautiful especially to their mother. And she was completely unwilling to follow the, this decree of some guy who claimed authority over life and death, but truly had none. And so she preserved his life in faith in God. She put him in a basket. Oh, man. That's a, that's a tough way to be separated from your mother, to be put in a basket and floated downstream in the Nile. Wow, tough beginning, born out of trouble and sorrow. Hmm. So what happened then? You know the story. Tell us. Pharaoh's daughter found him. Wow, brilliant stroke of luck. Know the sovereign hand of God. God brought Moses straight to the daughter of the one who had made the edict to, to kill him. And she had compassion on him. Why? Because God. She had compassion on him, and she took him as her own son. But she probably wasn't in the she she probably wasn't prepared to nurse him, so she had to find a nurse for him. Who did she find? His mom. Sovereign hand of God. This boy is going to be raised up to do great things for the Lord. And the Lord is causing his love to be manifest to this boy in the middle of extreme pain and suffering and trouble for the whole nation. In the middle of sorrow, God's love. 
in the middle of craziness and a, and a tyrant out of control, God's control. So what then? Moses spent the next how many years of his life in Pharaoh's courts? Forty years. So for 40 years, he is a Hebrew being raised as an Egyptian. He is educated in the, the, the Pharaoh's school, so it was the best school in the world. He is, he's brought up in the Pharaoh's palace, so it's the richest house in the world, the richest family in the world, uh, or certainly the, in the sphere of Egyptian influence and nearby. So he's rich, he's smart, he's brilliantly well-educated, he's, uh, he's, he's a prince. That's his first 40 years after being born out of sorrow and trouble. So his mother, we knew he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's uh, courtiers. Tell us about the next 40 years of his life. In the wilderness. Yeah, how did he get to the wilderness from the palace? He had kind of a revelation, right? He ran for his life. Why did he have to run for his life? He killed an Egyptian. Why? He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he took matters into his own hands, and he killed the, the Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. And the next day, he found out that he had been found out. He fled for his life. The next 40 years. He's 40 years old. Who's 40 in here? A couple people, like four, five. So, so imagine that the first 40 years of your life had been the first 40 of Moses' life. Put yourself in his shoes. Born out of sorrow, passed through the waters, raised as a prince of a king. <clears throat> you kill a man. Your life is suddenly and irreversibly changed. Where is the sovereignty of God in that? Should he have murdered the guy? No, we don't, probably not. You, know, you probably shouldn't commit murder to stop a, a beating, right? So we can say there was a sin there. So you, you murder a man trying to defend another guy. You know, I don't know, maybe the other guy was about to be killed. Maybe he saved his life, hard to say. He killed a man. Let's say you did that. You were rich, you were powerful, you were favored. Now you have identified with your people and, and there's no going back. You've now been marked with the people of God, the people who are to inherit the promises. Oh, they haven't very well yet, have they? How many years have they been enslaved in Egypt? 400 years they've been there. They've been enslaved the majority of that time. They've been slaves for generations. They've been slaves longer than our country has been a country. Imagine if all the people you've ever read about in American history uh, that came over from Europe had all been slaves. This is your heritage. This is what you inherited. This is what Moses inherited. Where are the promises of God now? And now Moses, who might have been thinking this whole time, maybe I'll be able to save this people. Now he's out. How long is he out? Is he, out, is he in a timeout for five minutes? Does he feel like he is a little ways outside the possibility that God can bring him back and use him to save his people? And maybe this generation will get out from under this slavery? How many years was he out there as, oh my goodness, he was, he was taking care of animals, sheep, poorest of the poor, not in some nice big city. He didn't have a big estate with thousands of sheep, and he just kind of managed the herdsmen. No, he was the shepherd. He joined Jethro's household, married, and he was a shepherd in some no-name wilderness, in some faraway place that he had not known, where they probably spoke a different language. They had a different culture. He had to learn all new things. He had to start from scratch. This was a tough start. This was a tough reboot. This is Moses' next 40 years. Now he's 80. He's probably thinking, well, let's read his own words. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So he made it to 80. So it's more or less his time to die. 
he's getting ready. He's considered his life in retrospect. He probably has some regrets. Here he is. And then what happens? One day, he's outside, and he sees something. What did he see? He saw the glory of God in fire. He saw in the distance a bush that was on fire. You know, I mean, fires happen in the wilderness. There could have been a lightning strike. There could have been a thing. You know, wildfires happen. So he sees this one bush, and he sees it from afar. It would have caught his eye. As a shepherd, he would have been accustomed to watching for wild animals, wild people like marauders. He had to protect these sheep. He had to protect himself. He'd been doing this for four decades, longer than most people in this room have been alive. So he saw that fire from a distance, and he watched it. He probably thought somebody started a campfire or something like that, maybe. And what happened? It kept burning. The flame did not go out. The flame of the glory of the presence of God continued to burn. And it didn't burn up the earthly thing it touched. He went to check it out. He was told to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. Moses encountered God in nearness. Did he see God? No. Did he see the glory of God? Yeah. And Moses was not consumed. Awesome. The awesome thing there was that God came down, and the other awesome thing was that Moses wasn't burned up because he was a wicked man, like all men, like all mankind. So he has this encounter with God. What does God tell him to do? Go, go, to, go back. Go back. Oh, yeah, I'm 80. I'm ready to die. I've given up on all these hopes, and now you want me to go back to Pharaoh or probably the son of Pharaoh, probably the, maybe one of the princes that he grew up with, maybe the one who would be really happy to kill him if he ever saw him again because he'd betrayed him. You know, he was, Moses was like a brother to the other princes under the then reigning Pharaoh. Oh, they would have remembered him. They would have recognized him. They would have had his head. Go back, Moses. What does he say? I can't. <laughs> of course. <laughs> So the Lord compels him and gives him grace to go back. He goes back. He tells the Hebrew people, I saw God's glory. He told me to come and do these signs. We're going to get out of here finally. What do they say? What do the elders of Israel say? Who remembers? You got to say it. Be bold. Who sent you? I am who I am. We're going to get to that in this psalm. It's in verse 13, but it's, it's in the second section. The psalm has two sections, verses 1 through 12, and then verses 13 through 17. And we're going to see how Moses waits until verse 13 to say God's name. But you don't have to get back to there right now. We'll get there. So he tells the people, I am sent me. How do they respond then? Do they say, wow, awesome, sounds good, we're in? <laughs> no? No, they were discouraged because of their long years of slavery. It's been this way for so long. It's been bad, real bad for so long. We have no hope. Moses, we're not doing this thing. God can't deliver us, or God won't deliver us. Whatever. That made Moses feel real good. So Moses continued to have faith that the Lord could bring about what he promised, or at least that he would bring something good. And I don't know what he was thinking, but he had some kind of hope and faith in the Lord. And he continued, after 10 powerful encounters where the judgment of God fell upon the Egyptians, but the judgment of God did not fall upon the Hebrews. It passed over them. Even the destroying angel of the Lord himself passed over all of the people that were called to be God's people, they went out. God saved them by a mighty hand. They went through the waters, and the glory of God protected them from behind. And when he lifted up his presence, the Egyptians tried to follow them through the sea, right? What happened to them? It didn't work. They all passed. They all passed under the judgment of God when the waters fell upon them. So the Israelites passed out through the waters, through death into life, and, 
and the, their enemies could not. They were overwhelmed. Now they were safe from the Egyptians. Moses has how many more years to live at this point? He's about 80 here. How old is he when he dies? 120. He's got 40 years left. This is chapter 3 in Moses' life, the next 40 years. So for these next 40 years, how are they inaugurated? There's, there's the people just pass through the water, and what are the first things they say? Yes! Yeah, we're free! On to the promised land! Yeah, God! Hooray! Let's build this temple! You know, let's make a place where God's uh, presence is welcome to dwell. Nope. What do they say? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? Oh, we missed the onions. The onions and the leeks and the, ah, and the meats. They probably didn't have a lot of meat. I mean, they were shepherds, so maybe they had mutton. Um, but normally meat goes to the wealthy. So I question how well they ate in Egypt. Um, so God says, okay, you want meat? You'll get meat. He sends them quail. He sends them millions of quail. Have you ever eaten quail? Who's eaten quail? Somebody must have eaten quail. Who's gone to a nice restaurant and eaten like duck or pheasant? A handful. Was it good? John Weiss. John Weiss says it was great. It's one of his favorites. I remember you telling me about that meal. I've wanted it ever since. They wanted it and they got it. They got millions of delicious quail. God caused a wind to blow in and it seemed like all the quail in the world landed right then and there. Well, the meat was still between their greedy, wicked teeth. God sent a plague. Many of them died. All right, let's fast forward, because that replays itself in different forms at least a half a dozen times in Moses' third chapter of his life these next 40 years. What's another judgment of God that happened on the people right under Moses' nose while he's watching all this? These people who are called to be the people of God, they do what? Give me one. Complain. They complain. They just complained. I thought they got over that. They complained again. What happened? Uh, the, they complained against Moses himself. They complained against Moses himself. And so the earth opened up, and it swallowed them alive, and living they went down to their grave, and it closed up over the place, and they were no more. And Moses watched it. Have you ever seen somebody die? Maybe a few of us have seen somebody die. If you're in the medical profession, um, you may have seen somebody die. You've probably seen a lot of people close to death. All of us have had family members who have passed. Um, occasionally, there is a peaceful death. Um, a lot of times, death ain't pretty. Moses watched a lot of people die. He watched people die right before his eyes, over and over again. Do you think it grieved his heart that these people who rebelled against him and were just utterly wicked sinners, do you think, do you think he, was, he mourned their, the loss of their life? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Do you think he was happy that they got theirs, that they got what was coming to them? No. He watched them die. That's terrible. The Lord was vindicated that is good, that is right and righteous. The Lord was right. It was still very sad. What happened? What's another one? What's another judgment that happened on the people? How about Aaron's sons? What happened to them? Fire came out from the tent of meeting and they passed immediately in the fire because they presumed to disobey the Lord and come near him whenever they wanted, however they wanted, in an unworthy manner, specifically contrary to the directions they had just received. But the Lord is a consuming fire. He wasn't a consuming fire in the burning bush, was he? Why wasn't Moses destroyed by that fire of his presence? Hmm. Good question. But these faithless young men were, what a terrible thing. What's another one? Fiery serpents. The, how did that one come about? Anybody remember? They complained again. They complained again. <laughs> Are you seeing a pattern? Does this have similarities to your life? How many times have you complained again? 
Well, if you're in this room, you have, and you've done it a lot. So real quick, we're going to go to verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? You could just keep your Bibles open if that's easy to do. So Moses is saying, guys, coming generations, generation living in 2018 and beyond, think about this. Think about it when you complain against the Lord. Think about it when ingratitude overcomes gratitude, when moping and giving in to, to feelings of sorrow overcomes hope. Does this, do we sometimes feel helpless? Yeah. Do we all do this? Yeah. Is it sin? Yeah. Moses is saying, think about it. Think about it. Consider the power of his anger. Fiery serpents. And in the middle of the fiery serpents, God commanded Moses to raise up uh, a bronze serpent. Did he wait till it cooled and he polished it? No. It was probably still like sending off flames when he wrapped it around that pole and raised it up. He was in a hurry. And everybody who looked on it lived, right? In judgment, mercy. In turmoil, peace. In danger, safety. How about enemies? Did, did the, the enemies of the Hebrew people come out and kill some of them? How many times? Once, twice, was more than once. There were many little judgments and all of it was right before Moses' eyes. He spent 40 years watching people repeatedly hopeless without hope, rebel, do their own thing, and some of them, but never all of them, always some of them, experience the judgment of God. And he continued to pray for them and intercede for them. When we come to this psalm today, that prob one of those probably just happened. Is this a happy song, or is it a mournful, pleading psalm of prayer? It's the latter, isn't it? Mm. This is a sad but very hopeful song. Imagine living 40 years of your life from 80 to 120 after all those bad things happened to you and you had lost everything and then seeing bad things happen again and again and again and again and again. Would you struggle with clinical depression? <laughs> I know I would. Would you be anxious? Would you have an anxiety complex? I know I would. Hmm. So he writes this psalm after something like that. One of the, there, there had been death. Something bad had happened. It was real bad. Um, missing from verses 13 through, uh, or verses 12 through 17, I should say. Missing from the, the six verses of Moses' prayer six separate prayers we're going to look at. Missing from those are requests for our, our confession of sin. That's already been done. So judgment has gone out from the Lord. Some of the people who were called to be God's people had died. The, the, the scent of death was fresh, if you will. The sin had been confessed. And now Moses writes Psalm 90. So let's make some observations from verses 1 uh, through 11. Um, let's take a minute or two and just make some observations out loud, and I'll repeat it so we can hear on the tape. What do you notice? What do you see? What do you observe? He's focusing on the eternity of God. He focuses on God's absolute, unchanging eternality. <coughs> Who does he say created the world? God. He says, you, speaking to the Lord in verse 2, you formed the earth and the world. So if he formed the earth and the world, he was logically therefore there before the earth and the world. So the earth and the world here means everything. It's a phrase that means all things. So before all things, there was one. And he wasn't a created thing. He was. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are. The reason he uses that verb tense is because God always is. He always is. I am who I am. He's always unchanging. 
the prophet would later write, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not destroyed, O worm, Jacob. Jacob is a synonym for Israel. Israel is a synonym for the people of God. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not, let's say, utterly destroyed. Moses certainly was learning that. What else do you see here? Eternality of God, verses 1 and 2. Sydney says, verse 8, it's kind of a reverse negative, but it's actually an act of mercy that the Lord reveals our secret sins to us. Bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Let's read it. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's an awful thing, okay? Everybody just, if you would, please close your eyes, unless you're listening on the tape and driving. Everybody else, please close your eyes uh, for 10 seconds. And I want you to briefly think of your secret sins. That's probably enough. So that was pretty ugly. That's pretty humiliating. Sidney pointed out that it's an act of mercy that he set our secret sins in the light of his presence. If your eyes are closed, you can open them. This is like gut-wrenching, humiliating. Our secret sins. This is not the sins that, we, that other people know about, probably. This is, this is sins that like, most people who, 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 rec- who know you probably don't know about. These are, these are all your secret sins. And they're no longer hidden in the recesses of buried memories or of years and years ago. Now they're, the light is shining on them. This is terrifying. We're going to talk about how that's an act of mercy. What else do we see here? What's the theme of verses 3 through 10? The shortness of life, brevity, vapidity, like a wisp, like a vapor. You, you can see your breath when you breathe out on, the cold, on a cold day, and then a moment later, The water is dissolved in the air and there's no cloud left. The smoke goes up from the fire and and after a little while, the smoke vanishes into the sky and where did the smoke go? I saw it, I can remember it, kind of, but now something else is happening and I'm paying paying attention to something else. Have you ever woken up from a dream? Have you ever awakened from a dream and you're thinking about it as you wake up and then if you, like, get out of bed, all of a sudden you've, like, forgotten it, and you're, trying, you're racking your brain trying to remember it. That's what your life is like. Your life is short. That's one of the two themes of verses 3 through 10. Sydney said the other one, our sins are out there. It's like our dirty clothes are turned inside out, and we're wearing them that way, and everybody else can see what I wanted to stay on the inside. Or not everybody else, but the Lord can. Ouch. Embarrassing. Humiliated. Shame. Death. Shortness of my life. Hmm. Yet, in the context of that verse 4, God remains. A thousand years in your sight, God, are like yesterday when it's past. Do you remember yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. It's gone. Tomorrow, today will be yesterday. Then there will be another yesterday, very quickly, just 24 hours later, unless you pass through time zones. So a thousand years is like yesterday when you're remembering it. When you remember yesterday, you usually can think of all of yesterday in just a few instants, in a few moments. What's a watch in the night? Somebody tell us what that is. Three hours? I'm actually not clear on that. We're going to take that. It's a few hours. So, huh? It would be from midnight to about 6 a.m. From midnight to about 6 a.m. Who's stayed awake uh, from midnight to 6 a.m. before? Do you remember what it was like waiting for dawn? I like to go hunting um, because I like venison. 
God made it. It's, it's range-free and wild. And, and uh, anyway, I digress. I like to get up way before sunrise. The idea is you're supposed to be in the woods or sitting in your tree stand, um, and, and you're supposed to be totally motionless, holding your bow and arrow or whatever, and be completely still, not making any noise, and then sit there like that for an hour before it even starts to get a little bit light in the eastern sky. And then it starts to get lighter and lighter, and it happens really slowly. I've done this more than once, and it's hard waiting for morning. I've never been a night watchman. Maybe some of you have. I imagine that's much harder. You wait for morning, and then it comes. What about the rest of the world? The rest of the world is asleep that whole time. What was that like to them? It seemed like a lot to you. Our lives seem like a lot to us. What about the rest of the world that wakes up at 6 or 8 or 10 a.m.? Did from midnight to 6 seem like a long time for most people? Probably not. Did they have anything significant in their lives happen during that time? Probably not. It probably went by with a couple of dreams. That's what your life is like. It's like that long. Like it started when you went to bed and then you wake up and boom, it's gone. And that's it. That was all there is. You are going to die soon. Whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're in between, you're going to die soon. When I go to work, every week I hear people tell me that they're not... They tell me about growing old and they tell me about how they're, they are or they are not ready to die. And as a, as a nurse, my clientele are thinking about death because they're getting closer to it than we think we are to death. All of us are close to death. That's what Moses is saying. He's saying, think about it. He's saying, God knows your secret sins and you're going to die and it won't be long at all. Just think about that. Moses has spent 40 years thinking about this, more than 40, but certainly the last chapter of his life. He has thought this theme time and time again, because he had to, because he saw so much death, and because the sins of, of himself and his people were turned inside out right there for God to see, and there was some judgment. There was some discipline from the hand of the Lord and some judgment on the wicked. When we think about this, Where should we get? Moses is asking us to think about it. What should we think about that? Give us a couple things. I'll start. Number one, don't think your life is going to last forever. It's not. So have some perspective. That's number one. Just literally have some perspective. So then what? Ah, that's a good one. Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like they did at Meribah. You might not get another chance to not harden your heart. This time might be your last chance. What happens to the wicked when they fall under God's judgment? When the flame of his presence and his glory comes near them, they're consumed. What happens to the righteous where... We take off our shoes. We're maybe terrified because we're near God. Maybe we feel deeply loved. Hopefully both. Right? That's the biblical perspective. What happens to a Christian who... Um, what happens to a Christian who is only half-heartedly willing to follow Christ, who, who is moving past that but never really wants to follow him all the way, but waffles back and forth. Let's say you're a person who's been in that zone and you've decided to follow Christ, but you haven't done a very good job. Does God ever set people on the shelf and raise up somebody else to do the work you wouldn't do, even though he preserves you from his judgment? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Everybody say out loud, yes. 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 Don't get sidelined. 
A Christian can be on the team, but be moved to the sidelines and not be used in a very glorious way to glorify God very often. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that guy that wasn't willing to leave everything to follow Christ, but who is willing to leave most everything or left and then kind of looked back and then, and maybe he didn't turn me into a pillar of salt like Lot's wife. Maybe he had mercy on me again, right? And then I followed Christ and then I kind of turned back and then I, you know, I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who thinks about this, who thinks I am close to death. This might be my last chance to give him my whole heart and life. I'm ready. Be that woman. Be that man. That's what Moses is saying. This might be your last chance to not get sidelined. Or worse, what if you've never decided to follow Christ? Maybe this is your last chance. Maybe now you're going to come to the judgment. You don't have many years left or many minutes left to make this decision. Make it today. He says in verse 12, teach us, he's speaking to the Lord, so teach us to number our days. What does that mean? Could somebody rephrase that for me? Teach us to number our days. Count. Count. Teach us to count our days. I'm 35. Moses says I'm going to live to be 70 or maybe 80, statistically speaking, right? 35 is half of 70. I'm halfway there. I'm counting how many days I may or may not have left because I might die. Well, it depends on whether or not you stone me after the message, you know. (laughs) I don't have long at all. Think about that. Count it out. Think, wow, I've used up half of it already. What have I done for the Lord? In preparing this message, I'm not necessarily asking you to do this because this might not be a healthy exercise, but I think it was for me. I wrote out a list of regrets, not of past regrets. I don't think you should do that. I wrote out uh, because he remembers our sins no more, because love covers over a multitude of sin, Um, because love keeps no record of wrongs, right? I wrote out a list of anticipated future regrets. I got 14 big ones. I'm not going to read them to you, but if I were to summarize them, I basically came up with things like, I wish I had been a man of prayer. I wish I had been a man of the word. And I just read lots of scripture every day, day in, day out, season in, season out. And I didn't do this thing where I took breaks. And I didn't do this thing where I had little devotionettes. I I wish I hadn't done that. So I imagined that right now, my time was out, and I had fast-forwarded to the end of the timeline, the short timeline of my life, and nothing had changed, and I had never done anything differently than I'm doing today. And I wrote out my list of regrets. I regret that I wasn't a better, that I, I wasn't different as a father. I regret that I wasn't different as a husband. There were some things I would have changed. I regret that I didn't do lead family worship when I was exhausted. Oh my goodness, I was too tired to read a paragraph of scripture and just pray a basic prayer at the dinner table before we ate? Really, I was too tired? I regret that. And there were more, and they were mostly like that. I regret that I fainted when things were tough and I didn't push through to seek the Lord. That is a summary of my list of future anticipated regrets. Moses is saying, you don't have long, but you do have now. You have a chance. You have today to give everything to the Lord and to push through if you're tired, to push through if you're despairing, to push through if you're sad, to push through if you've sinned again. Right? That's not something that's unique to you if you feel like your life is a series of the same failures. The scripture says no temptation has befallen you except what is common to man. That means anything you've ever struggled with, anything you've ever been tempted with, whether it was little or big, whether it was good or bad or ugly, people in this room have been tempted with the same thing and you're not alone and we are all going through it together. Moses is saying, now's your chance today. If you mess up today, if you have another, another, if you wake up tomorrow, 
the Lord is merciful and he'll give you another chance tomorrow. I hope. Right? I hope. So do it today. Teach us to count our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Thinking this way is wisdom. Don't be foolish. So in part one, there's a contrast. What's the contrast between the first two verses and verses 3 through 11? There are two main groups of people. Who's the main figure in verses 1 and 2? God. In verses 3 through 11? Man, or God's people, who, those who are supposed to, who are, to whom the call to follow the Lord has gone out. Right? And then there's a contrast of time. We said, so we have God, we have God's people. We have eternal, we have, and, and made of eternal stuff. And then we have made of dust and lasts about five more minutes, right? Then we, we have the implication of God's holiness, although I don't think it's clearly stated. But we do have our wretchedness very clearly brought out into the light here, right? There's a contrast, an implied contrast. Then Moses prays, verse, verse 12, he prays the first of six prayers. He prays that we would have wisdom and that we would think about these things. Then verses 13 through 17, he prays five glorious prayers. He prays, and this could be your daily prayer. You should pray this at least a few times a week. This is a normal Christian prayer. This shouldn't just happen after somebody dies. Return, O Lord. Is O Lord capitalized in your Bible, L-O-R-D? What is that capitalized? What's that, what's that mean? What? No. Yahweh. It's the Tetragrammaton. It means I am who I am, doesn't it? This is the personal name of God by which he revealed himself to Moses. Moses is getting personal with the Lord. Even in what, seem, what might seem like senseless death and disaster, God is personal and he's here. And he's crying out to him, return, O Lord. That's his personal name. You could put in return, O Jesus. How long? Have pity on your servants. Why did it feel like he wasn't there? Verse 7 and 8, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Let, pray like this. My point is pray like Moses. Let these six prayers be a part of your daily and weekly prayer life. Verse 14 is my favorite one. He has just appealed to the Lord's mercy because he knows God personally and he knows God can and will show him mercy, and he pleads for it. Pray like that. Verse 14, satisfy us. This is an extreme statement. Satisfy us. There's been death and judgment, and he's praying to be satisfied. He's not praying, save our lives, please, we'll do anything. He's praying, I want to be like, I just finished a Thanksgiving dinner and my heart is filled with joy, and I'm in the presence of my family and my God. And all I can see is love, 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 shining from his face, coming out of his words of affirmation and approval. This is what he's praying for. I pray like this almost every morning. It has completely changed my life. I have known in my soul, and I regularly do, this deep sense of satisfaction that comes from having a special revelation from God that he loves me, that has quieted anxiety, fear, worry, hopelessness, despair, and a really bad attitude, and a whole host of other things. When I seek the Lord in the mornings, and I meditate on his love, when I spend time worshiping him, and when my prayer is, is not, please have mercy, which is the first of my prayers, verse 13, have pity, Verse 14, I immediately move to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast, unmoving, anchored in the rock, in the bedrock love. 
It's going to be there. When I'm in the boat and it's stormy, I've woken, I have awakened and it's a new morning, my anchor holds on the other side of the veil that has been torn in the presence of God, and I am anchored in the bedrock of his love for me. My boat will not capsize, it will not break free, it will not sink. This is my prayer life. Make it, this was Moses' prayer life. Make it your own. If you pray like this, in faith, God will answer your prayer. He will satisfy you with living water even when you're in a sun-scorched, dry wilderness land. He will satisfy your soul. When you pray, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, God will answer you. Next prayer. And, and then he goes on, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That sounds great. Everybody wants to be happy. He's praying for it. He's not praying, I want all the stuff. He's not praying, I want that person to treat me differently. He's not praying, fix everything. He's praying, just love me and satisfy me with that. And that's going to make me rejoice. That's the source of my joy, your love for me. Anchor me in that. Pray for that hundreds of times you will know the satisfaction of the soul-quenching, thirst-satisfying love of God. Next prayer. Verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Who afflicted them? God afflicted them. Get that into your theology. If you think God is good and therefore nothing bad will ever happen to me, or... Worse, something bad has happened to me, therefore God isn't good. Just repent. That's, 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 it's not biblical. That's not a real, it's not logical. There are good resources on this if you think that's logical. That was a big struggle for me. It took me about a year to get over that doubt. But God was merciful. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. This is a good prayer. If you have a life in which you have a lot of suffering, pray this prayer. This is a good prayer to pray. Pray that God would make you glad for as many years as you have seen evil. Next prayer. Let your work be shown to your servants. Who are his servants? We are. And your glorious power to their children. Who are the children of his servants? Your children. He's praying, and you should pray too, let your work be shown to me. Because on an almost daily basis, I forget. I'm praying over and over, open my eyes again, I'm feeling really blind right now. And when you don't feel blind, you probably are, so you should still pray this prayer. I'm often praying for God to supernaturally open my eyes and help me see reality, because it takes me about 30 seconds to completely forget everything about the Lord and to get sucked into some wormhole, cesspool, yeah. of terrible sin. I mean, there's nothing good that dwells in me. So I'm always praying this prayer. Open my eyes. Let your work be shown to your servants. Remind me that you're powerful and that you're able. And your glorious power to their children. Do you remember that wonderful, famous prayer of Moses when he prayed, Lord, show me your, what? Glory. He prayed that. You should too. What happened? He was 40, no, he was 80 when he first saw the fire of the presence of the glory, the glory of the presence of God. He missed it. Did he see it in the pillar of fire and cloud? Yeah. Did he see it fill the temple? Yeah. And then even after seeing his glory again and again, and you should be praying for that regularly because he will answer that prayer and you will see his glory. He prayed it again and this time he meant it. He wanted to see, he wanted to really see God's glory and God said, you're not ready to see all of it. After your dust, your body turns back into dust and goes into the ground, I will raise you and give you an immortal, glorified body that's capable of looking at me. But for now, I will show you my glory. You're going to see my back. And he put him in the cleft of the rock, and he covered him there with his hand, and the Lord passed by. What did he say? Oh, you've got to have this verse memorized. Who has that verse memorized? The Lord passed by and he said what? The Lord, 
the Lord, the Lord, the gracious, the Lord God gracious, abounding in love and kindness, and showing mercy. Go ahead. To a thousand generations. Find that verse and memorize it. It's one of the most blessed and cherished verses that you'll ever memorize. It'll change your life because it's the Lord describing who he is. I am who I am, describing who I am is. Know him. Knowing him is life and it's satisfaction. He is love and mercy right in the middle of the judgment around it. He's holy and judge. He is merciful to his children. We might have to make this a two-parter because there's so much more good stuff here. So he prays to see God's glory and God to reveal himself to him, verse 16. And then he prays that God would also do that for his kids, for all our kids. You should be praying for your children that even if you don't have children yet, you should hope <laughs> or, or anticipate maybe. Or you'll have spiritual children. You will have disciples. It's pretty much the same thing, even though it's very different. You should be praying that God shows his glory to them. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That is in the context of everything before where he said, I have about five minutes left. Nothing I do will last unless it's a work where you participated with my spirit and caused me to do something good that you prepared in advance for me to do. Pray for those things. So let's do that right now. Let's go to prayer. Lord God, we can't do anything except that we abide in you. If we separate ourselves from you, we will wither up and die and be thrown into the fire. Oh, have mercy on us. Don't prune us away from your people. Instead, prune us back that that which is wood and hay and stubble and just worthless, burnable things in us gets consumed in your, in your fire. And as you draw near to us, keep us near you. For only you can make us faithful to you. So, Lord, have mercy on us. Show us your glory. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Show your glory to our children. Like us, love us, show your favor to us. And we know that you do, because in your Son you have made us your children. Therefore, we are here playing at your feet like kids in the king's court. Welcome in your holy presence. O oh Lord, minister to us these things and teach us to pray like Moses. Amen.